Hello, I'm Dr. Stephen Hassan with another episode of the Influence Continuum. And I'm so honored to have Rebecca Bender, who has consented to do this interview with me. Uh, Rebecca is at the forefront of helping survivors of human trafficking. Uh, and I'm just, I'm in awe of what you've been able to accomplish. Honestly, a little bit jealous, I might add, because you are <laughs> way more organized than I am, but I'm, this is about promoting uh, your visibility because so many people are truly concerned about sex trafficking as well as labor trafficking and what to do to protect people from being groomed and recruited, but very importantly, what happens when people have been taken over and controlled. And for my listeners and followers, they know that I've been involved with Ending the Game with Rachel Thomas and Kadisa Phelps, who are both survivors, and we put together this 10 session program, but it's for minors. And so it's up to 18. And when I understood you have the, the Rebecca Bender Initiative and Endeavor Academy, and your academy is the largest online uh, uh, platform to help trafficking survivors, uh, I, I'm just so excited to introduce my audience to you. And let me just say a few more things, extolling your praise, if I may. <laughs> you got interested in this because you were a victim and became a survivor and got education and help and have dedicated your life to helping others. Um, so you're an activist, you're an author. Your book is? In Pursuit of Love. In Pursuit of Love. And we'll have you hold it up later for our video. You're an entrepreneur, and you are a trailblazer indeed. You have done specialized training for over 115,000 professionals, including law enforcement, FBI, Homeland Security, as well as community leaders, medical professional, professionals, and more. But I want to especially have you talk about the Elevate Academy and, and the resources you give to survivors. So you've also done an amazing TEDx talk, which was great. Uh, you were appointed you. by the U.S. Attorney General to the United States National Advisory Counselor. You serve as an advisor to some of our nation's leading nonprofits and government agencies. You're a subject matter expert for investigations. <laughs> I mean, on and on. Rebecca, you... Feels like, you, feels like my mom wrote the you bio. You are a force. <laughs> well, I just, I, I, you know, I try to highlight people whose work is truly making a difference in activism. And of course, my thing is uh, mind control. And I did my whole doctoral dissertation connecting the dots with trafficking, fraud, force, or coercion. Mm -hmm. And to finally connect with you and to educate my followers about your great work. Um, so, uh, Rebecca, can we just start at the, you know, how did you become an expert? Like, what's the, your origin story? Yeah, well, thank you for that incredible intro. And I'm honored to be able to share with your, your community um, more about this topic. But I'm especially honored to meet with you. Uh, as, as you know, I actually quote you and cite you and your work for many, many years now. I learned about you from Rachel Thomas and Carissa um, and the Avery Center, who's ran by another survivor called, uh, named Megan Lindstrom. 
and they had put together a report showing how um, the bite model and your book kind of mirrors and replicates, you know, the cult-like behavior of domestic human trafficking. And so it's truly an honor to have connected with you. I know we got to Zoom before this. Yay, and, but I hope um, to meet you in yeah. person someday soon. But anyway, yes, proceed. So great. Uh, tell us your story, your background story, and then we can get into, you know, all the incredible work you're doing. Yeah, well, you know, before I share all of my trafficking story, you you had asked about kind of how, how you become an expert, so to speak. And I can remember having this moment um, after I had escaped my trafficker and I was sitting at home in my house and I hadn't gone public with my story, much too afraid um, of the retaliation or that they'd find me or also what people would think because I didn't have a lot of the language I have today to to put to my story. Sure. I still kind of self-blamed and victim-blamed a lot. And um, I remember just one morning thinking, it was I was actually sitting at the kitchen table and the sun started to come up. And I think what normally is beautiful for most people, a sunrise, I had this sick to my stomach feeling of time to go in. Mm. And I can remember in that moment having this piercing thought, how can I sit here and do nothing? How can I sit here in my warm, comfy house with my nice cup of coffee when I know what it's like to be more afraid to go home? And that was the moment that I decided um, to sell my business. I was running an ultrasound center at the time and go into nonprofit work and I didn't really have a plan on what that would look like. All I knew to start was that I, I wanted to share my story that trafficking looks really different than the movies yep. and that it was happening in communities all across the country, even small communities. Yep. And that was really all I had to go with. And, and as I got you know out there and started learning more um, and, and digesting other workshops that I would attend at conferences I was speaking at, I realized I, I needed there to be more than just a sob story, right? I wanted there to be a call to action. Right. I wanted there to be purpose. And so I took my timeline, did a macro level view. And, and I thought, well, you know, I've been to jail a lot. Maybe I can train law enforcement. That's kind of what, what went through my mind. And so I put together a couple law enforcement trainings and case studies based on my own um, conviction record and, and uh, did kind of undercover operations trainings and, money laundering uh, trainings, assessing culpability, trauma-informed interviewing, and it just started spreading. And, and I was kind of surprised, but I then started having other survivors reach out and say, hey, can you mentor us on how to turn kind of purpose right. um, out of our, our message? And and how do you do that? And, and how, what do you charge? And how do you put a contract together? And all those, right. you know, business things that you're not taught when you're in, in a criminal, you know, industry. You're you're just kind of thrown into the anti-trafficking movement without any business kind of mentorship or acumen. So at the time I was finishing getting a degree online because I lived in this tiny farm town and I thought, well, if I could get a master's online, I could mentor online. And so I started an online school and we had just five survivors in the very beginning in our first class. And now we have had over nearly 1600 students wow. um, go through Elevate. Yeah, wow. it's crazy. It's great. 600 I know it's shocking. 600 U.S. cities where survivors are taking seats at the table, they're helping with policy, they're joining other task forces, they're a part of their town's community operations, and um, they're working within, you know, peer mentoring and other things. And it's it's just so shocking because when I ran from my trafficker, I had no clue what I was going to do with my life. I literally thought I was going to work at Walmart the rest of my life was what I thought was going to happen. 
because that's the only company in this small farm town I lived in. And I thought, well, I guess this is it. I guess I'll just work at Walmart the rest of our life, which is fine. But it felt like that was my only option. And so there was still a sense of hopelessness. Um, and so to see where, where, you know, what's been able to happen and transpire in the last decade is just, um, I'm still just so, so grateful to even be here. <laughs> so at what point did you learn about uh, Rachel's work or Cadiz's Fel- uh, Phelps work? Carissa was coming to town um, to Eugene, Oregon, to speak at the University of Oregon, yeah. which is about two hours north from the farm town I lived in. At the time, I had a foster daughter who had been trafficked. She was 15, and I had um, b- became an emergency certified foster parent to take her in. And I decided I wanted um, my foster daughter to hear Carissa. And so we made the road trip two hours north uh, to hear her speak. And afterward, went up to her, told her that I was a survivor too, and that I'd started working in anti-trafficking more in my region and state. And um, so we just became good friends from there. I got to go on the runaway girl team and did some trainings. And that's where oh, I met Rachel Okay. Thomas so yeah. And- so it was because uh, in, in her story, she was trafficked as a child. Then she got mentored, went to UCLA, got a law degree, a business degree, and started a business training survivors. And that's how runaway uh, girl got started. So you were a running away girl. So this is an outgrowth in a sense of, of, yeah, she, she brought me in on a couple trainings in California and I got to meet a lot of the other survivors. And, um, it was just great to see the camaraderie, um, that existed between those of us who, who had survived something substantial and, and yeah, it's been great ever since. I'm I'm trying to get her to join my board now. So <laughs> yeah, she's very busy pursuing as a lawyer some of the big platforms and some of the big you know uh, bad yeah. bad folks who are exploiting vulnerable youth. Incredible story, but you know you were beaten and tortured and tattooed and I think your nose was broken and put in jail. Like just give your credentials for anyone listening that you really were so, I mean, you were really uh, taken such advantage of, and that makes you such an incredible mentor and survivor advocate that people have to take you seriously. Well, thanks. I, um, yeah, I was, I was born and raised in a, in a small farm town. It was actually a, a very small town called Cave Junction, Oregon, which is only, you know, a couple thousand people. And, and um, my parents divorced when I was nine. Uh, my mom moved us to the big city of Grants Pass, which was about thirty to 40,000 people at the time, barely over that now. And um, I realized it was an ugly divorce. And I realized that if I just said yes to everything and stayed busy in high school, that I wouldn't have to be alone, right? My dad, you know, had started kind of drinking after the divorce and wasn't very present. My mom was, you know, busy making, rebuilding her own life and making ends meet. And um, really just kind of felt very alone, raised myself for the most part. And and so still, even in, I would have never been put in an at-risk youth category. I was a varsity athlete. I was an honor roll student. I was involved in everything I I did. You know, I was a cheerleader. I did soccer. I I was just active. Um, But really, it was a coping mechanism to just never have to be alone. Mm. And that can be a real dangerous cocktail, uh, especially because then you say yes to every party, yes to every boy. Yes, every drug. And so while I was busy just doing everything and anything to avoid being alone, I, I graduated high school and, and didn't really realize those were traumas or vulnerabilities. I don't think any kids 
you know, realize like, I think I have a trauma and vulnerability. You don't think like that at 15 or 16. So, um, graduated high school a year early, my junior year, I had enough credits and I was accepted at Oregon state university, had my dorm room assigned and I was really excited to get out of my small town. Yeah, And uh, then I got pregnant Mm. and I gave up my dorm room and, um, decided to stay in my, in my community and go to community college so that I could have my daughter. Uh, and I'm so grateful that I did because she is amazing and, and really is what kept me, I think, fighting as things mm. took a downward spiral from there. But I ended up moving up to the uh, Eugene, Oregon, to the University of Oregon kind of college campus area. My friends that went there had an extra room in an apartment after their freshman year. And they said, you and the baby should move up. And I thought, okay, finally, this is it. I'm going to get out of the small town. Right. And when I got there, those same vulnerabilities of feeling really alone started to resurface. I didn't have the, you know, the support back in my small town of my aunts and my mom and my grandma. And, you know, right. you don't have that, that kind of support as a teen mom. I'm, you know, now barely 18 trying to figure out life and college right. and have this little baby. And it was at that time that I, I met the most amazing guy. And he was funny and charming. Yeah. Most amazing, terrible guy. Go on. Yeah. But that's, that's what traffickers do. They're chameleons. They, that's the epitome of fraud is to pretend to be someone that you're not. He wasn't the age he said he was. He didn't have the, you know, career he said he had. Right. He had this long standing criminal record that I knew nothing about, including um, providing minors with drugs and alcohol, stocking orders, none of which I knew about. Right. He just morphed into being everything that I needed and wanted. Um, and that's that's so that's literally the definition of fraud, right? Is to defraud thousand percent. No informed consent and malignant yeah. narcissists are incredible liars and judges of human nature and can identify which buttons to push in your vulnerabilities and for so many young women, they think uh, their pimp is their lover, you know, the boyfriend of the future husband. And that's how they get groomed initially. I don't know if that was yeah. your story. Yeah. Romeo trafficking is, is a huge tactic out of the different types of traffickers. We've seen Romeo traffickers, guerrilla traffickers, spelled both militant and animalistic, I'm sure for both reasons. Right. And, um, and a CEO trafficker, which is actually a coined term from Rachel Thomas, exactly. which was her, yeah. you know, false business opportunity. Um, but that was definitely my case. He dated me for six months, got to know my hopes and dreams and made everything about me and the baby, yeah. which I think really... I broke a nine-year-old me really wanted yeah. that family kind of unit. And then I really wanted for my, for my little girl. Of and so I fell hard and fast at 18. And when he invited me to move in with him, I was excited. I thought this would be the one. Um, and then he told me that his job was relocating him to Las Vegas. Mm. And so I begged to go. Mm. And I, I like to make sure to tell that part of the story because I think when we picture human trafficking, for the most part, you know, we picture kidnapping and handcuffs and duct tape and basements and right. all these crazy scenarios. And we're not thinking about the fraudulent, coercive tactics and manipulation and reverse psychology and yep. isolation from family and friends and and little things that start happening is, you know, I feel like I'm preaching to the expert no, here. But- <laughs> yeah, but I mean, I, I know all this stuff uh, because I w- was educated by Carissa and, and Rachel and other survivors and and, 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 and and yourself as well. But my listeners, many of them 
hear about trafficking. They may have been exposed to QAnon that said that they were helping people with child trafficking or accuse, you know, the Democrats of mm-hmm. child trafficking. But you're actually a survivor of the real thing and you know what the real thing is. And that's especially why I want you to not assume uh, my listeners know what I know, please. Well, the thing that I think is so fascinating about about your work and the bite model specifically that's been so crucial in my understanding of what took place in my, in my own life mm. contextually, right? It's like sometimes you hear the big words, but then it's hard to understand until you lay it over what happened this day. Like I can literally remember the day I got a text message from an old friend, like an old high school friend. This was right after we had got to Vegas and my trafficker threw a fit and said like, why would you need to stay in touch with high school friends? And that's so silly. And um, really got pushy about me deleting all my contacts. And in hindsight, you know, it's never this A to Z black and white moment. Like you see on law and order where the guy meets a girl in the mall and the next scene she's, you know, in a mini skirt and fishnet. It doesn't work like that in real life. It's these really small, gradual little things where you, you get to the end and you realize I don't have contacts in my phone. I'm living in a city that I don't know. I'm isolated from my community. Um, And it hits you once you realize that that's a tactic employed by traffickers. But in the moment, you think you're in this relationship with kind of a jealous boyfriend and you want to appease them and you want to show that you don't care about the high school friends you used to talk to. And so you normalize that behavior not realizing those are small, subtle steps t- towards isolation, exactly. right? Like if you knew that in the beginning, you might raise a red flag and 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 tell someone. But we're ta- we tell people we teach our kids stranger danger. We don't teach about boundaries and those small, subtle right. steps. So, so n- n- needless to say, those were some of the little things that would take place. Um, and sleep deprivation and and. Um, Oh, all of that started definitely. Rewards and punishments, but also love bombing yep. and, and effusive praise. You're so wonderful. You're so beautiful. You're the, so special. You're the love of my yeah. life. In the meantime, he's doing saying the same thing to several other women at the to same time. 10 way. other trafficked women, yeah. Right. And and all of that stuff ended up taking place. The, the sleep deprivation was big. I, sometimes I was only given an hour to sleep in the closet because that was the darkest place. Cause, so it didn't matter what time of day. They would, he would say, go to the closet and sleep. And it was like a walk-in closet. So you had a little bit more space. But needless, nonetheless, you got an hour. And... And it's in the middle of the day, and you better go there because it's where you'll it'll be dark, you know. And yeah, I slept um, three to eat. four hours a night, and people are like, "You what?" And I'm, but I I was labor trafficked, and was not sex trafficked, but uh, I was totally working, giving all the money over to my pimp Sun Myung Moon, who is a multi billionaire. Wow! But thinking I was doing it for God in my in my yeah. Story. But please continue. And you- yeah, you think, you know, and it wasn't every day that I was only given an hour, but it was it was frequently towards the end of my trafficking. It got more and more intense because um, we knew the feds were watching us. They had already raided one of the homes that um, a victim was in. And so we knew it was just a matter of time till they raided up, you know, where we were in Las Vegas. So it became really intense toward the last probably year mm-hmm. um, when we knew that we were being watched. Mm-hmm. And, and so that sleep deprivation and and, you know, food deprivation. And, you know, he would say like, well, she'll eat what I'm eating at restaurants. And 
um, those type of things where, again, you don't really catch them in the moment. You're, you're thinking, you know, that you're, you're doing it for the family, that right. you're, you're playing your part in the community. And, um, and eventually I ended up collapsing in the Hard Rock Casino hmm. for dehydration and overexhaustion. I passed out and was rushed to the emergency room. And I can remember getting the medical records just a few years ago. I, I, you know, reached out to get my medical records and on it, it says, and mind you, I, I it, you know, you're going in between 9 PM and 2 AM, which already should be a red right. flag for ER staff. Right. <laughs> you're in potentially hypersexual clothing. So should again, be a red flag. You're found passed out in a casino, hotel casino, red flags, so lots of red flags, right. but the medical report says 25 year old female appears alert and in no distress. Husband is here to get her. They don't have time to wait for results. Wow. And I thought none of this was red flags for anybody. Yeah. It could have been because like it was Las Vegas. Cause I remember an ER nurse uh, creating, you know, like what people should be watching out for with trafficking victims coming into an ER, but please continue. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that just that sleep deprivation and food deprivation got so intense that ultimately it was due to dehydration and overexhaustion was the results of that, that, you know, collapse. Mm -hmm. But, um, for six years, I nearly six years, I ended up getting, um, bought and sold between three different traffickers, um, further and further up kind of crime family echelon of, in terms of just, um, the, the severity and, and reach and network that, that they had at the end. Uh, in that six years, I was arrested multiple times um, for, you know, different prostitution-related charges. I was, like I said, hospital. I was in the hospital for those. I, um, I had a lot of things. I had my face broken in multiple places, mm. actually. My palate cracked, my nose twice, my maxillofacials and turbinides, which is like your sinus cavity, impounded. I had um, black and blue eyes on a regular basis or, you know, what I can remember once having like fist prints where it looked like someone dipped their hand in purple paint up and down the side of my body. Just um, constant abuse. I had constant abuse. I'm so and sorry. I'm listening to this. That's okay. It makes me so angry and upset. It was just, um, it was constant state of fear. You just, lived in this constant state of walking on eggshells, constant state of fear, always wanting to obey the rules. And when you did obey them, like to your point, you would be rewarded, mm -hmm. right? And and unfortunately, I think sometimes general public, but especially lawyer or legal systems can say, well, look, they look like they're having fun or they went on a shopping spree one right. day or she got to go to the spa one day. She got to go on vacation one day. And it's important for people to remember that that honeymoon love bombing phase of the cycle of abuse is a part of the abuse exactly it's not it's not isolated of abuse and good times it's all abuse right because it's a tactic employed to keep you still coming back thousand percent and in regards to brainwash as you well know it's like that's how we train anything it's how we train our pets it's how we train our children in terms of potty training or you know and so to think you know when my when i get a puppy and they go in the house, I rub their nose in it. And when they go outside, I give them a treat and clap and cheer. And so it's the same exact concept mm. of that we that we end up getting brainwashed and don't even realize that there's these connections between reward if I cooperate. Right. And, and the pimps often have women 
recruit other women. So now they become a victimizer. They're part of the the chain of events. And so Oh, for sure. One hundred percent. One of the things too that was interesting, and I think part of maybe what started me on the the journey of learning more about brainwash was uh, when I told my my daughter was probably about seven seven when I when the feds raided our home, mm-hmm. and I ran to London. I fled to the UK. I lived in London for a year. She did fifth grade in the UK. When we came back to the states, and I started going public with my story, she was now probably probably 12 by then, probably like 11 or 12, because I wanted to kind of wait a few years and got some therapy and tried to find some stabilization. But I can remember when I told her, she said, I don't know why you would, why would you stay for me? Why wouldn't you run run for me? And what, you know, like, why wouldn't you leave for me? Why would you stay for me? And then she said, if they can brainwash you, they can brainwash anyone because I think you're really smart. <laughs> and smart it was girl. So, and it's so true. sweet and true. It really opened my eyes of like brainwash is a very real thing. I think we all think we're too smart in 2023 to ever be brainwashed, but it's such these subtle, small little things. Totally. That- you skipped, you know, a grade to graduate high school early. So did I, you know, I'm a smart guy, but I didn't see it coming. I had no, I had the illusion that I was making my own choices as I was deceived and manipulated and isolated and mind controlled and indoctrinated into this new identity. So were you given a new name along with the hypersexualized clothing and new language system? Yeah, I mean, there's a whole vernacular of lingo that you have right. to learn and a whole bunch of rules to the to to the game that you have to learn. But rites of passage were definitely a part of that cult-like family that we had. Yep. Um, there would be a series of things. One was you're, you're given a new name, and then next you would get, you know, branded. You'd, you'd get the tattoo. And eventually, you would change your last name legally to all be the same. And the fourth and final would be that you would get a a business in your name, which is the dangling carrot to think that you're getting out soon, right? That if you invest all of this community money into each individual's entrepreneurial idea, then you can leave the game with something and just go run your own shop and be done. And so that's the dangling carrot of eventually we all get out with something that can sustain our family and our lifestyle. Yeah, I've heard this before from survivors that they are programmed to think that they're going to be, a, you know, they're entrepreneurs and they make way more money than anybody else. Of course, they don't get to keep it. They have to turn right. it over. That's part of the trickery and the exploitation. But yeah, the, this Well, control- and them thinking they're an entrepreneur in in sex work is one thing, but we actually would buy real businesses. We bought a pizza shop. We bought a manufacturing plant. Oh, we bought, so we bought real businesses that would then be the, the front to launder money. But eventually the goal would be that the business, even though we were putting money into it in hopes to get it eventually legitimized, that it would make enough money to pay the bills on its own. So You know, that's part of why the feds were able to get, you know, the RICO Act and tax evasion was because of all of the legitimate businesses that were purchased, that money was being laundered. So were you like Rachel turned and became an expert witness on her her CEO pimp or were you involved in any of the prosecution or you didn't need to? Unfortunately, most of us were much too afraid to talk. 
And so there was no prosecution of my trafficker. He is still trafficking oh, today. Oh, no. I'm so sad yeah. to hear this. He got two years for tax evasion, um, as did two other victims. And every those two victims spent 13 months in federal prison. And the, thir- the, the third one got five years probation, and I got a failure to file, which is a fine, um, but no prison time. So, you know, plea deals negotiated, but most of the victims all charged and penalized at some, some part. But no, we were not a part of any trial. We didn't, we all refused to talk. Got it. Yeah. The silence thing is also part of the religious cult, you know, phenomenon too, that people would rather go to jail and take all the blame for doing criminal activity rather than turn their, the, the glorious leader in. Uh, well, and one of the things I think that's different between, you know, Rachel's experience and my experience, mm-hmm. and I've heard her share lots, and she's a phenomenal speaker, yes. and her star- story is so heartbreaking and yet inspiring at the same time. Yep. She was trafficked through that CEO component. Right. So there wasn't any, in a sense, like connection um, to feeling like you're a part of this, like, family, quote-unquote family, yes, where, it, you know, mine ending, being there for years and feeling like, you know, all of the women, some of, sometimes we all lived in the same home together. So they became my very best friends. And, and there was times when I, you know, you physically could run, but I remember feeling like, but who's going to pay all of her bills? And, and will she be beaten if I run? And so your bond becomes with everybody, not just the trauma bond with the trafficker. Right. It's everyone. And then there's that survivor guilt. Like if I leave, will her kids be hurt? If I leave, well, my, my daughter's never going to see her aunties again. And, you know, they're, they're literally your only friends. Yeah. And they're the only people in your life that aren't wanting something sexual from you. So there's even feels like this stronger bond of like, they had my back on the streets. If I would be locked in hotel rooms, you know, they would show up to get me. If, if I had Christmas, you know, birthdays, we would celebrate together as a unit. So there was this really deep feeling mm. of community that was harder to leave than just this, you know, a-hole that's be- beating me. Right. But it was well, like that's, all of that. That's another parallel with all types of uh, religious and other cults is the, the, some of the people are your, you feel like are your best friends and uh, you have yeah. those ties. So, um, Matter of fact, when I, when I ran um, after the one, one of the women, um, her name is also Rebecca, in the, in the family, um, she did time in prison. And when we got our FBI file back, or not FBI, federal file back, Mm -hmm. um, we had all these jail calls and surveillance photos. And you can hear her and I on the phone, and she's crying, saying thank you. And she doesn't know how she'd, you know, be able to keep, you know, still be there if I wasn't out trying to help. And and you can just hear, you know, that, that bond, so to speak. But when she got out of prison is when I finally was able to run. and, And my trafficker had gone out of town to tell his mom that he had a self-surrender date for tax evasion. And that was the moment um, that I grabbed my daughter and and ran for good. But it was, um, I kind of disappeared off, off the face of the the earth as much as possible, fleeing to another country, you know, like that's how deathly afraid you were. And, and so I kind of fell off the grid for about a year and a half. And then out of the blue, one day I, I got a phone call from an unknown number and it was her. And she had hired a private investigator to find me. Mm. And she just wanted to say sorry because she had recruited me. I see. And um, she recruited me with the idea of like, hey, you won't be beat. You won't, you know, she had seen bruises on me. 
before. And she said, Hey, if you come to our family, you don't, you won't be hit. Things will be easier. We invest our money in businesses. This is your way to get out. Oh, that's because you said you went from one trafficker to another, to a third one. Mm -hmm. (sighs) Yeah. And so she was just apologetic that it ended up, these were the worst beatings that I had ever experienced in my life. Mm -hmm. Um, And and so she felt bad. She had, you know, she had some remorse and, and wanted to apologize. And we stayed in touch ever since. Still best friends to this oh, day. That's great. I actually bought a house 10 minutes away from her, moved to the city she lived in. Good. Um, Good. And your so daughter's doing really well, grateful. I hope. My daughter is almost 24. Uh-huh. So she's very grown now and she's doing phenomenal. She got a, she's a, huge track and field athlete she's a hurdler like her mom she, you were an athlete too you said right yeah she's much better than me though she she got a scholarship to berkeley got a business degree from cal Great. um on a on a scholarship and then for grad school she still had eligibility because of covid and so texas a&m gave her a two-year full ride offer she um so she got her master's in public policy and she just signed pro and is training for the olympics she moved um, to a town where she's uh, training with a team of future Olympians. How so. exciting. That's great. I was about to say, is she interested in your nonprofit work or is she going to chart her own uh, future? Is she? Who, who knows what the future will hold for her? She's worked for, for me every summer as, a, as Intern. any nepotism, right. any, any nepotism works. I always gave her summer jobs and she was about 17 and and she works for us right now part-time. Right. Um, but her major and some of her focus during her collegiate internships was in social impact investing. Wow. Kind of a way for her to help people help people, but not with direct service. Yes. Um, that's more fitting of her personality. But she recently came with me on a training and she hadn't heard me hear she hasn't she hadn't heard me speak in probably seven years and got to hear the story while she sat in the back and um, she was so you know, blown away at the reminder of everything that we've all lived through. And, and at the end, everyone asked to take pictures with her. They didn't want to take pictures with me. I'm shocked so, at that one, but. Um, so she, it was really fun. And she was like, I, I could, I could be like, I could do this. And I said, well, it doesn't pay as well. Stick with social impact investing. Well, I, I think you deserve to make a lot more money, whatever you're getting paid, you should get more because again, you're also a mentor to so many other people. And, um, although I'm sympathetic because I do this work for the cause and not, not to, uh, to, to make a lot of money. Although if I had more money, I'd have a staff and be able to do incredible programs on a bigger level. Yeah. I, I just put on well, my, up, up my first online course, but it's <laughs> like this tiny little thing. But, uh, well, men, we know three, we have almost 300 survivors a year go through our Academy. That's a lot of, admin, operations, sure. tech, teachers, faculty. So, you know, just trying to raise money to keep the school open is, is the goal. Um, but that's, that's our biggest, you know, push. And then we, I do training still for law enforcement and I get to testify at trials. Um, so you do expert you know, witness and, as well. So we're, go- we're going to, you know, uh, do a blog and embed the video, but f- for people listening, uh, I said it at the beginning, Rebecca Bender Initiative, B-E-N-D-E-R Initiative, Elevate Academy. Just Google that. You'll find this. You can sign up. You can sponsor. You can 
organize trainings for your local law enforcement people, educators, yeah. media, uh, politicians. Uh, and especially, again, if people are listening to this and they got kind of sucked into the false uh, narrative that QAnon was actually going to help people who have been trafficked or trafficking children, like Rebecca Bender is the real deal. And this program <laughs> is for anyone over 18 to really help them with their lives, to move forward with really practical education. And, and as we were talking briefly before, um, the ending the game was for younger people than 18. And you were also saying that people should get support therapy and then come to take the academy and such, right? Yeah. Then, yeah. We're not a stabilization organization. So we don't assist with, you know, relocating you to safe homes, making sure you have food, shelter, clothing, therapy services. We don't provide kind of that individualized wraparound care for stabilization. We, we really want to help you with the, what we call the now what, yeah. you know, like when it hits you after maybe you've, you ran from your trafficker and hopefully maybe got into a safe home or at least to a stable grandma's house for, for you know, minimally and, and you have a moment to take a breath yeah. and then you, you have this feeling of, okay, now what am I going to do with the rest of my life right. after escaping all of these horribly traumatic things? it's like you're right back to the same vulnerabilities that got you trafficked in the first place. Yeah. And now it's compounded with criminal record, PTSD, survivor guilt, trauma bonds that still exist. Right. Those feelings of, well, could I do it on my own and just keep all the money? Um, all of that still plays a part in the first, I would say six to 12 months minimally. Yeah. So we, we want to make sure to get everyone stable before we just start teaching you how to build a resume. You know, like, well, of course, sure. the latter is important, but, but both all of those steps matter. But I'm sure if somebody is looking for help and they're not yet ready for your organization, if they contact you, you can make a referral to wherever oh, for they sure. are because you're uber connected i said at the beginning yeah. that you're part of the u.s attorney general national advisory council which you know is comprised of other uh experts and survivors yeah there's about 20 20 or 20 of us that um advise congress on uh, and do state assessments on every state on you know where they're lacking and and where they've excelled but still the areas for growth and Happy to refer, of course, anyone that calls. We've got a lot of connections. We have, you know, spreadsheets of over 300 safe homes. We've got a resource packet of stabilization programs offered in varying communities. So we, we would never not help. But our main focus of the school is to really figure out through a strengths-based approach what you're good at. You know, right. when you get out of trafficking, you don't even know what you're good at. It's like, am I a creative photographer or a analytical bookkeeper like which gift do I have and and we really want you to explore that and figure out which ones make your heart come alive and and what dreams did you have that you originally risked your life for and how can we help you get there without that much of a risk you know right. and, and it's survivor and led and taught and that's super yeah. huge because when you're in a mind control cult, you're programmed to think you can have no life outside of the abuse and the closed system. But meeting former members who have their lives together, who are really um, uh, excelling as you do, uh, is inspirational. Well, she can do it. Maybe I can yeah. do it kind of thinking, right? Exactly. And we have over nine faculty of other 
survivor leaders just like me. So it's even not just me, it's everyone, right? Carissa, Rachel, all these nine faculty, you're, you're exposed to this community of what we call survivor leadership, where it, you realize like, oh, I could do this too. If everyone else can do it, I can too. And, right. and it provides you contacts. Um, you know, we have like cohorts and Facebook groups and Slack channels where everyone stays connected and we tell each other about different get togethers throughout the country. But we've noticed that having that community for a lifetime is really impactful because yeah. things things come up in life, yeah. right? You don't just do one year in a safe home and then everything magically comes together. Definitely. We see you're right, so when survivors um, start dating again or get married or when their children hit the age that they were trafficked, there's all these things that come up throughout your, your lifetime, your life's journey. And so to have a community that you can reach out to and say, can someone talk today? I'm, I'm struggling. And, and to have 1,600 people on a listserv that people respond, yeah, I'll jump on a Zoom. How can I support you? It's just, it's that community like you never expected to be available yeah, to, it, to help. It's, so it, it's really, it's really beautiful. It's marvelous. So I'm going to just ask you to pick a few things. You've just named a bunch of them, but pick a few things that the public who has no understanding about what, what people go through. Like you mentioned, like, I want to date. What do I tell the person about my history? Like how much do I share and how early or employment if you have a record and, you know, just things that other people have no clue of the difficulties. Yeah, I would say, you know, one of the thing, I guess the main thing that I, I think the public doesn't generally understand is how difficult it is to find a sense of normalcy again. You, you know, generally you're, you're taken from one town to another because you want to find stabilization. Right. And that means starting over completely over with nothing in life. You have no job, no, no job history. You have criminal record. You have, you know, all of these layered ideologies and beliefs that have been ingrained in you that are not true or accurate right. that you have to undo. Right. And just the normalcy of, of feeling like, I mean, these are thoughts that went through my mind. If I share my story or if someone finds out about my record, will my daughter's friends be able to come over and play with her? Mm. Or will the parents wonder what kind of person I am? Mm. Um, when I got you know married, I'm now divorced. When I got married right out of trafficking, I can remember thinking, are his coworkers going to mock him? Mm. Um Will we be invited to family barbecues? Mm -hmm. Like, what will people think and say? And and how do you step in and make friends as an adult in a new city is hard enough. Yeah. Let alone when someone goes, so where are you from? <laughs> You're like, um, Vegas? <laughs> like, what do you even tell people? Do you lie? Do you come up with a story? Do you find a way to, to omit um, and minimize to protect and preserve? Like, it's just the normalcy part is so hard to tiptoe into because no one's kind of guiding you and you don't know how people will respond. And you really just want to feel like everyone else. Um, and that first initial, you know, reset is you're not like everyone else. Right. And, and you do have to figure out how to navigate it in a way that's going to empower you to live your best life and, and your children, if you, if you have any. And so those are some hard things, but then the other things ruined credit traffickers ruined credit on purpose debt sometimes things get put in your name without your consent you know all of all of those normal things like i went to turn on my power my first apartment and 
um, they, I needed a co-signer and I had this huge debt and I thought, well, and I, you know, I got the address in the years. I said, I didn't even live there at that time. Right. But it was a form of punishment when I ran was to put everything in my name. And, and so little things like now I need a co-signer to even turn my power on that I didn't expect. And just all these hurdles, we call them to re-entry that, that people don't anticipate, let alone that you need therapy. Right. <laughs> just regulating your emotional responses to things, knowing like, oh, I'm having a really heightened emotional response. And I actually, very quick, I had a, I had a therapist that we were co-presenting at a European conference in Berlin on, and we were walking from our hotel to the event together. And she said something that bothered me. And I guess my body language got kind of prickly. And we got into the event, we sat, you know, put our things down to sit down. And she said, Hey, really quickly, I said something back there that upset you. Did I hurt? Did I hurt your feelings? Or are you being triggered right now? And I started weeping and I said, I don't know that I know the difference. Ooh, that's such a... I don't know that I know the difference. I, I want to highlight that for a minute and just say it was good that she noticed that you yeah. had a reaction. But what you just shared, I don't know, is so typical of my population. Like you don't know yourself you're, because you've been so alienated from trusting your own sense of reality, your own emotional mm-hmm. states. You've been so abused. People are often out of their body. <laughs> like they have body reactions and they don't, they don't have the connection of what, what happened. You know, it may have been a trigger from being hit in a place of your body or a, a word or set of words might have triggered. And just yeah. to, to, to be able to, encourage i try to encourage my my uh my consultees uh to be in the present to be in their body to understand their abused past is in the past that was their younger them and to think about a future healthy self that you're working towards and so to kind of you know be stationed here with the future and then you can from safety place of wanting to be more functional, you can go, oh, I'm not sure what it was, whether it was a trigger or it was emotional state, but it could be you cared about my feelings and were willing to potentially apologize or change how you interact with me is huge. I matter. Yeah. And we're humans, right? So all of us are going to get our feelings hurt about something, or we might be annoyed or angry if someone, you know, backbites or, you know, someone gets a job that you don't, there's jealousy. Like there's, we're also normal humans with normal emotions. Not everything is a trigger, Of course, but also identifying when am I having a really heightened emotional response to what just happened? And can I ask myself why, why is that bothering me? Like, oh, am I feeling like overlooked? Am I feeling replaced and my are these causing some of my trauma responses from from the from the past or is this just a normal like oh that sucks that I didn't get that and and you can move on easier but I think for me that barometer was that heightened emotional response or any visceral reaction where I actually feel like I want to have a panic attack Mm. that for me is like okay this isn't normal um like why am I naming it when someone is identifying I'm having this reaction and then you can use your frontal cortex to go okay what what's underlying it that's that's bringing this up yeah I had someone you know fairly recently 
kind of make me feel a little bit like they thought I was dumb just in the language they used. And I know theirs, it was unintentional on their part, but that was something that happened. And I immediately, like I could feel it in my chest. Like I wanted to swallow this knot. And I started feeling like, like a little bit of rush anxiety. And I can remember, you know, when my trafficker would say, Oh, you think you're smarter than me? And he'd slam my head into the table or you think you're smarter than me. And he'd slam my head into the wall. He would say it frequently. And so I could, I immediately knew like, I'm, I'm feeling triggered right now. Um, and I need a minute, um, to take a breath and realize that I know you don't think I'm stupid, but the way that was worded came across in a way that triggered me. And I'm not asking anyone to change how they deliver because they don't know. But it was a response that was really heightened for me that wouldn't normally match right. the conversation level. Um, and so having people that understand and will forgive and and not take that personally and realize like this has nothing to do with our conversation. Right. You have some trauma you need to still kind of work through right. and um, and adapting accordingly. You know, those are important things in life. Right. Well, this <laughs> find people that support you. This is only the second time we've talked, but may I just share quickly a, a technique that I teach my my folks about that that triggering thing when you when you Please. were sharing. So I I first emphasize that we have neuroplasticity and neurogenesis, meaning we can grow new brain cells and we can also rewire existing brain cells. And when we have a trauma history, we have certain, you know, loops uh, of program reactions to stimuli. So again, going back to my core premise, which is it's your mind, it's your body, you should control it. You should have an internal locus of control with a future positive orientation. I suggest that my, my people revisualize a a trauma scene where that was the trigger only this time you get to use your imagination if i knew then what i know now how would i want to react to it and because it's in your mind you can imagine your wonder woman and you know lift him up with one hand and throw him out the window <laughs> but the point is is to get detached from that you know, power control, physical abuse scenario and, and understand that was the past and you would never let anyone do anything like that again. You would scream, kick them in the balls, whatever you need to do, poke his eyeballs <laughs> yeah. out. And some of my, it's folks, a good tip. some of my folks learn martial arts as you know, part of their recovery. You know, no one's ever going to do that again to me. Yeah, it's a good tip to revisualize to regain that neuroplasticity. Yeah, if I knew then what I know like now, you know, and and with when when people are victimized as children, imagine the SWAT team showing up and arresting the perpetrator before the, the abuse happens. To use your imagination to help your younger you that was uh, powerless. Yeah, really good. Thanks for sharing. I'm going to use that. Pleasure. Yeah, no, I, uh, this is, you know, my own journey of healing over the decades for myself. I chose to become a therapist. That was my way of doing therapy for myself and figuring things out. But I like, I like to help people. So people say, you're doing this 47 years. How do you keep doing it? And it's like, cause people are helped. <laughs> 
thank me. Yeah. That will keep me going for a bunch more years, <laughs> you know, because I can. Yeah. You know? Well, we are sure glad that you're doing the work and helping all of us. And I know my understanding of all I've experienced has been radically shifted because of your work. Um, I would have never known about brainwashing. I would have never been able to lay my story over the bite model and have so many light bulb moments where I now can articulate my why mm, where I could never before. Mm, so I'm very grateful for your work. Uh, Thank you. And, and just your emotion is touching me so deeply before we're going to wrap up in a couple of minutes, but before we do say a few words to law enforcement, because I remember when I did a fusion center training with Carissa and, and Rachel, <laughs> there was 600 plus people in the room, they had never heard a brilliant, educated, you know, talented person personalize how badly they were treated by police, not understanding that they were programmed to not trust law enforcement. Give us some words to law enforcement, anyone who's listening. Yeah, I mean, law enforcement, it, you know, used to be someone I would I would consider a rival gang. <laughs> now, you know, are one of the best partners that we have. So that transformation in my own journey of understanding how I was brainwashed to see them as my rivals, um, and then it was compounded with their um, with with tactics that were taught to them that are not, you know, not always healthy or empowering for people. And I I think as as more people understand the criminalization of those in prostitution is not always by choice, but by force or circumstance, we can train more empathy in our detectives and our units and hopefully shift the way task force and operations don't target the arrest of victims, but we're targeting missing children that are with known suspected traffickers. They're known to be with suspected traffickers. That's one. We want to use that language carefully. Right. Right. Um, And so when we, when we, when we shift our operations to not just do this mass pickup of quantity, but a qualitative op where we have used Intel and partnered with the missing center of national center, missing exploited children to find juveniles in that, in that Mm -hmm. city then our ops are more targeted towards kids that we know are with tra- suspected traffickers. And we can, we can formulate our interview questions in a more trauma-informed way. We can assess culpability so we're not arresting victims for their involvement in right. crime. Um, and that's really the goal for me is, is to try to shift the criminal justice system as it pertains to this type of crime. And so I would hope they'd get a training if they're listening. Yeah. If your op doesn't do that, if it doesn't do what now is kind of referred to as reverse things, yeah. um, please reach out because we'd love to give you an all-day training where you learn better trauma-informed interviewing. You learn how to do an op differently. You learn how to use Intel to target specified individuals. Um, and we can, you know, we bring in teams of people like Equitas, a phenomenal district attorney association that assists in I know citing them. case law yes. for them. And, yeah. You know, we really love to make sure law enforcement can shift the, the way. And research is just getting better, right? Yeah. Like sometimes we tell people, you haven't done anything wrong. Just 30 years ago, things were taught to you differently. We have a lot more research now, right. 30 years later, that we want to we want to improve the criminal justice system in a way that's actually going to work. Yeah, victim-centered <laughs> and understand yeah. that, you know, people are be, not choosing to be abused and in a mind control cult. And I'll just add part of my motivation in doing my doctoral dissertation to update the law is to criminalize brainwashing so we can actually put pimps and traffickers in jail 
for enslavement because they they should be off the streets. Yeah, brainwashing would be a great component, especially within the, the Trafficking Victims Protection Act, added as a form of coercion or added as a fourth thing, force, fraud, coercion, or brainwash, if those have been used to exploit. You know, trying to figure out how to add that would be well, a huge I, I, part for our, our industry. Well, I'll, I'll just say I, I've interviewed Paul Chang, who's a labor trafficking regional coordinator for Southern California. He uses my bite model in trainings regarding labor trafficking because fraud, force, and coercion is within the bite model, and the bite model is more robust. So yeah, that's a good point. So it's more of the umbrella to understand those well, things. Well, coercion, yeah. what do we mean? Oh, controlling behavior, information, thoughts, emotions, creating a new identity that's dependent and obedient. Oh, and there's a long list of each. And, yeah. and commercials, uh, traffickers do almost all of them. So true. Yeah. So true. I'm going to use that when I take the stand. Oh, <laughs> have a tri- please. I have a trial on Monday. Oh, well, so I'll be using- if you have time, I would, you know, the dissertation is on freedomofmind.com and I summarize brainwashing models. And of course, I it's the first scientific model to describe authoritarian control. And with that, um, Elevate Academy, Rebecca Bender Initiative, uh, we'll add the link to your TEDx talk. Your book is, can you hold it up? Yes. In Pursuit of Love. And what's the subtitle? One Woman's... It says, One Woman's Journey from Traffic to Triumphant. You are so special. Thank you for being you. Thank you for contributing to the planet and uplifting us. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Great. Take care. That's it for today's episode of The Influence Continuum. I've been your host, Dr. Stephen Hassan. Theme music for the podcast is by Nasser Malik. To keep up to date with me and happenings that I think are important, please visit my website at freedomofmind.com. There you'll find in-depth articles about cults, mind control, and other relevant topics. You can also find me on Twitter and Instagram at CultExpert. If you want to develop a comprehensive understanding of these topics, I highly recommend my books, Combating Cult Mind Control, Freedom of Mind, and The Cult of Trump, in that order. These books are a culmination of 45-plus years of experience, and will really help you grasp the complex web of undue influence. I have also launched a new nine-hour online course for anyone interested in a deep dive into issues related to recovering from undue influence in all forms. While this course is designed for clinicians, everyone can benefit. If you're a former member, I congratulate you for your bravery and invite you to use the hashtag IGotOut and join our online community at IGotOut.org. Remember, love is stronger than mind control. And thanks for listening.